This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hi. Welcome to a new edition of the Hindu on Books podcast. My name is Varghese Kejor. I am resident editor of the Hindu in New Delhi. Our guest today is Ravinder Kaur. Ravinder is Associate Professor of Modern South Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. And her book that we discuss today is Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. Welcome on this uh, podcast, Ravinder. We'll discuss some of the ideas that uh, Ravinder outlines in this fascinating, brilliant book. So I, I mean, it so happens that uh, uh, we are discussing this book only at couple of days after India celebrated the 75th year of its independence uh, from colonialism. In fact, uh, the celebrations are continuing. One theme, of course, is uh, uh, the remembrance of the joy of winning freedom from oppression and exploitation. The other, of course, is the rise of a new nation, the emphasis that India is not what it used to be now, and also that it is going to rise further. So we are celebrating and preparing for the rise of the nation in the next 25 years. You, you discuss in this book, Ravi, the promise of future is an integral part of brand making of the nation. So I'll take a minute trying to explain the title of uh, the book, which is Brand New Nation. The title alludes to a phenomenon that we see play out before our eyes on a daily basis, branding the country, branding the nation. The emphasis is on the uniqueness of India, its potential, its promise. We have seen various iterations of the thought and action of branding the nation in earlier periods also, which the book goes into, the India Shining Campaign, the India Incredible Campaign. All these campaigns and political rhetoric around them try to achieve more acceptability for the country, for the nation. I am using these words interchangeably here. Ravi might want to talk about the distinction between them during the course of this conversation. Ravi argues that the nation state has turned into an enclosed cultural commercial zone. And nation building is turned into nation branding. Have I got the gist of the book more or less accurate, Ravi? Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. <laughs> So it's indeed uh, an outstanding work of uh, scholarship and political commentary, part field report in this book. Uh, uh, says that she even has used propaganda as a resource for uh, history writing. It features advertising campaigns, interviews with people whose job it is to brand the nation. It uh, took me some time to get to reading this book, but I would say it was an appropriate week to do so during the Independence Day week. So congratulations, Ravinder Kaur, and uh, begin by asking you, uh, should nations brand and rebrand? You caught historian Valley Orleans, who, a historian turned brand manager, who is using theories of Hobbes Farm and Perry Anderson and argue that there is nothing really wrong. In fact, the nations should re- rebrand, reinvent, that is just uh, a part of a nation's path and growth. So should nations rebrand at all? I mean, thank you so much for beginning with uh, with this hidden source in this book. I mean, by beginning with this historian turned brand manager, what is fascinating about this is that in the, you know, in the middle, just when 
the Soviet Union had collapsed and uh, the Berlin Wall had fallen down, a kind of new world of liberal order was emerging. At that time, uh, you know, this was pretty much a, you know, revolutionary thought to rethink what a nation is all about. So here, the idea was that companies and countries have much in common, that these are joint ventures, that these are composed of people, whether you come together as a nation or you come together as a joint venture, the principle of the organization is still the same. So once you begin to think about country and company in interchangeable ways, then the principle, uh, you know, of how to run a nation also begins transforming. And I think this is where the modern version of nation branding begins to take shape, which became, you know, as a tool offered to the post-communist states as well as post-colonial states as to open up the markets in order to in investments and to run a country like a company. So I think this is where we begin uh, witnessing how a new form of 21st century nation and nationalism begins taking shape. Exactly. So that is a very good beginning uh, to go further into these topics that you discussed. So the nation making itself is in one sense a branding. It is a creation and imagination. So the people who are building the nation, so to speak, during the anti-colonialism struggle, they were also presenting a version of the nation. This is what India is. This is what it should be. How is that different from what we see in the latter part of 20th century when globalization kicks in? And then you talk about the transition further from, from globalization to this emphasis on culture and cultural nationalism, which actually uh, comes. So at least the three phases I could see. One is the nation building phase, and then you have a globalization uh, proper phase. And then later on, in the beginning of this century, you see a return of nationalism or cultural identity. Would you be able to elucidate these three stages if you could? I think that's a, that's a very accurate reading that you're making. I mean, of course, there is absolutely nothing new about the fact that identity and identity making as such has been central to the project of nation and nationalism. So national identity or who we are and what you want to be or what our prospects are, this has, this has always been the case. And cultural nationalism has been very cent- central to shaping these identities. But if there is anything different, it is that the idea that a country is a company and can be run as such as a profitable venture is what makes it different, you know, from the older forms of anti-colonial nationalism that we witnessed and uh, in the globalization era. And of course, we have come, uh, you know, in the post-globalization era as well. But the idea that uh, identity can be sold too. And by that, I think we go to the heart of the branding operation because a brand, which basically means to stamp something, to mark out, to identify something as different from something else. This is exactly that operation where you want to create a you know, distinct identity of the nation. You know, for, for instance, India and India has appeared in many forms in the last few years, which would be India shining or India incredible India or make in India. All of these campaigns that we uh, that we have witnessed, advertising campaigns, in a way they are reshaping the identity of the nation into a branded entity. And I think the fair comparison I would say in order to map out the, how, how India has shifted would be that 
This week, we are celebrating the 75th anniversary of India's independence. But like, let's recall the 50th anniversary of India's independence. I think that that how those two anniversaries were marked in itself, the, the celebrations, the nature of celebrations, I think that in itself gives us an idea of how far we have traveled in this field. Right. So, okay. so you, through these pages, you also examine the limits of branding a nation as an economic identity because uh, there are other elements of the nation's identity. They go talk about culture, language, civilization, etc. that you go on in later uh, parts of the book. So, in fact, I was reminded of uh, one of uh, the taglines that uh, Donald Trump's uh, strategist Stephen Bannon had created. The, the idea that a nation is not an economy. Nation is more than an economy. So there is culture and other parts that actually come to play. So how has culture become an integral part of this branding? While the ask is for investment, the ask is for more economic opportunity, or the, the branding is primarily economical, I would say, the Davos or everything. But there is a strong cultural component to it. How do these components interplay in the branding of the country? I think what is significant is that in the branding, I mean, the moment we use the framework of branding to witness nation and nationalism, what we see very clearly is that culture and economy have never been separate. Regardless of what uh, political analysts have told us, they have always been integral because it has never been purely, you know, the economic component has moved the nation because a nation moves on hope, optimism, love, I mean, literally the emotional qualities. And I think in 1990s, somehow the idea became very, very popular that it's the economy stupid. The economy is in order, then it doesn't matter what policies are precisely being put. Uh, because as long as people are content with their economic situation. And that was that was obviously not true, as we have seen again and again. What we call the post-globalization era, that is the breaking of the liberal order consensus, precisely arises out of this, where we are reminded once again that ideology are primarily as much as significant movers of you know, nation as the economic is. I think in that sense, it becomes a very telling framework for us to understand that branding is just laying out, you know, what has always been the case, namely that culture and economy move together. Right. Okay. So you talk about uh, companies and CEOs who are claiming that they are doing this for patriotic reason, not for profits. Uh, On the other side, we have politicians who exhort companies that you think of the nation, not only profits. I mean, is that viable? And uh, how is this notion that commerce or trade or comp- or develop or, or uh, capitalism for the glory of the nation? Or is it just a case of using patriotism as a facade to give a moral gloss to capitalism? What actually is happening in, in this claim that uh, I am not working for profit, but for the nation? I think it's quite, uh, and this is what ethnography reveals, you know, when you talk to people who do, uh, you know, who engage like business people, policy people, advertisers, etc., and also political figures, I think there is, it reveals a contradiction. Like there is something uh, alluring about money, about capital, but at the same time, there is also a shameful aspect to it because you don't want to be seen as a money-minded utilitarian person. 
So it's never one or the other. But what is interesting is that how people frame, uh, you know, their approach to money making by putting it as a higher order of things that we, you know, we do it for the for a common national interest. It is for the upliftment of the nation, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this is one aspect of it. But I don't think we uh, say that one is right and the other is wrong. Perhaps to take this contradiction itself as constitutive uh, of this operation, like this is how it works. And at the same time, it also shows us how bureaucracy uh, has evolved uh, in the last uh, few decades in the sense that a uh, lot of uh, people who are in the government service, they would like to be seen as, uh, you know, people who run private operation, like, you know, they would like to be called CEOs. Right. And uh, and the funny part is that uh, people who are actually CEOs, that is in a corporate operation, they uh, downplay that and they would like to be seen as doing national service. So what I found was very interesting, you know, that how a certain kind of blurred space of public private, uh, you know, is being created where, uh, you know, the, the idea that the government operation is becoming or trying to mimic uh, the ethics of a corporation and whereas the corporations are trying to do, you know, what a public enterprise would be expected to do. So perhaps this too is a creation of the, you know, the new political order which is being shaped. So that these two uh, processes combined, actually it significantly distorts the way democratic uh, politics uh, should function, I would say, because a political executive who is being rebranded as CEOs, as you said, Chandra Babu Naidu as a CEO of Andhra Pradesh, Manmohan Singh, as a CEO of India. So essentially, is there an underlying implied assumption that uh, the primary accountability of that CEO of the political uh, executive uh, or political establishment is not solved what should be the case in a democracy for the citizen, but to, to capital? Hmm. So this is actually, this leads us to, you know, one of the main fragilities or the counterintuitive outcomes of the branding operation uh, or the country company comparisons that we were uh, dealing with, which is that, you know, a brand, you know, an identity which is marketable and can be sold in the market, it basically requires that it is always pristine and uh, unharmed. And whereas a democracy per se is a space, it opens a space where dissent is at the heart, where you would critique, where you would lay out things which are not working, things which are not exactly a celebratory. And that basically in the branding sphere, that would be seen as harming the brand. Yeah, you said specifically it should be a form of treachery, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That you're not working in the interest of the nation if you say this aloud. So in a way, uh, you know, democratic ethos and branding are at odds with each other. So I think the friction, if at all, arises from this collision between the need for a democracy where dissent is at the heart and uh, at the same time, branding which demands complete obedience and complete like movement, right? So I think many of these battles, political battles that we see about free speech or, you know, dissent or image of the nation, that how is it being communicated to the world and especially the world of investors? You know, I think if we recall that many times that foreign publications or what foreign publications print in India, about India, 
plays a significant role in some of the controversies that we hear from time to time. And uh, I think this, we can only understand that why there is so much backlash about these things. It is because, you know, a brand image demands obedience, whereas a democracy does not do that. When the nations were fighting against colonialism, so the idea was to regain uh, the autonomy of the national decisions and choices. And economic factors were actually one of the main driving uh, the, uh, factors that, that, that were behind nationalism. So right now, the, the nations are trying to rebrand themselves and engage with the global capital. Do, can we assume that the nations actually remain the sole custodian of their sovereignty? Or are they actually working uh, under duress or pressure from global capital? Though at right now, we are actually offering ourselves as a participant or trying to compete with other countries to be a more attractive uh, destination for global capital? That's that's an excellent uh, question because I actually make use of an image uh, which I came across, uh, which uh, which the, the title is Sail for Our Beautiful Shores, which is an India Shining campaign image. And that actually tells us exactly the kind of, uh, you know, the route the corporate nation has taken, namely by inviting investors. And it, at first sight, it seemed like, uh, you know, a complete part of from the anti-colonial, uh, you know, movement. But we must recall that anti-colonial movement or the economic um, aspect of it, it was about gaining control of the economic resources as such. And it wasn't exactly anti-market or, at, because there are multiple strands in this. There is not a single strand about uh, which way the economy should go. But very clearly what united many differences in the economic policy was that uh, the, the bid to gain control over economic resources. And this is what is happening here, that uh, sovereignty is about gaining control of the resources, not just in territorial terms, but also the, you know, the power to market and sell them. And I think this is, this is where we see that, uh, that, the, that the shift is in place, that, uh, you know, most countries have sort of, uh, you know, embraced uh, the free market, um, uh, you know, uh, the policies. And I think uh, many times, you know, when we read, it seems like that, uh, you know, the liberal policies came from outside and there was a lot of local resistance. So, of course, there is resistance, but it is not from the entire society. So there, there are differences in the society as well, like who is against and who's, you know, uh, for it. So I think this is where uh, I would say that we have to uh, make sense of how the post-colonial, post-communist world, including China and Russia and Brazil, it's not just India, it, it is happening throughout the old, uh, you know, post-communist, post-colonial world, that, uh, that these policies have been adopted. See, on the one hand, India as a country is trying to brand itself before the global capital system and attract investment into its territory. At the same time, within India, we have a similar competition among the Indian states at play. We encourage states to compete with one another to prove their worth as the most attractive destination uh, for investment and uh, capital and talent. How does that work? And competition has truly seeped to uh, you know the, the nation at, uh, itself, and by that by that I mean you know the states uh, within India. Nearly 
nearly all states have their own branding operations and they compete with each other in order to uh, bring capital to their own zone. And I think the most memorable one uh, would be, you know, in 2008, um, uh, you know, 9, when, uh, you know, Tata's wanted to set a factory in West Bengal and, uh, you know, the Singur movement derailed it. And overnight, uh, you know, they were offered to come to Gujarat, to bring them to Gujarat. So in a way, West Bengal is competing with Gujarat or, uh, you know, UP these days is also trying to establish itself uh, with its own investment campaign. And so it's is Tamil Nadu, you know, from like all all parts of India. And then, then there is the same kind of tools of governance, namely like competing, like who, like the ranking order has also been produced within India. So in that sense, it's very interesting that, uh, you know, brand India has become this mother brand. And then you have this multiple sub, you know, regional brands which are competing together as well. Okay, so you, you, you talk up, you spoke now and you uh, write about that in the book as well, uh, the India Shining uh, campaign, which uh, you have a contrarian view uh, compared to the prevailing wisdom on the topic. So you say it was not really a flop in terms of uh, as a branding exercise and also communicating to its own citizen about what to expect and what, how, how you sh- they should participate in this uh, global program. Uh, can you explain that? Uh, aspect of it. I think this is, you know, pretty fascinating about India Shining because it became one of the most reviled uh, or, uh, you know, campaigns uh, in Indian political history. And namely because many people at that time laid the blame for the defeat of the BJP government, Vajpayee government at the door of that campaign, namely that uh, India Shining brought in two flashy images, you know, which were too good to be true and that uh, citizens were still uh, you know, living in, you know, in poverty and that there was, you know, so much deprivation and still uh, the idea that India is shining was being sold. And of course, I write about this campaign and what the intent was. And uh, what is interesting is that uh, I have argued that, look, yes, the government had faced a political defeat, but that political defeat by no means meant the defeat of the liberal or the new liberal uh, free market idea at all. Because if you recall, the counter campaign launched by the Congress party was Aam Admi Ko Kya Mila. What did the common, common man get out of this? And basically what they were asking was that, yes, India is growing, the growth rate is high, but what are we getting out of it? What is your share in it? So it was not like that anyone was coming up with an alternate economic vision or to say that, uh, you know, well, this free market idea is not good enough. Let's do something else. So there's nothing of that sort. Basically, what they were saying is, well, you did free market, but it's not good enough. We can do it better. So in a way, the competition is more about who can bring the market and investment, uh, you know, in a, in a better way and how is it distributed uh, among the citizens. So I think in that sense, uh, what it shows is that, um, you know, 10 years later, namely in 2014, when uh, Narendra Modi contests elections as the prime minister candidate, the slogan he comes up with is uh, good times. And I think in a way, you see, in a decade, 
it is it is bringing back the idea of india shining but a new form namely good times and and that becomes a winning ticket where the claim is that we will do market reforms we will do investments but but we will do better so what i'm saying is that uh, that as far as the you know the the free market idea uh, is that has actually percolated into the common sensical world view uh, pretty much in the last three decades so from the india shining campaign of the bjp in 2004 to uh, contrasted with the, with the congress's aam aadmi campaign it was not so much to uh, antagonistic terms but uh, at a deeper philosophical level you actually point out from being we the people formulation it is turning to i the common man so we are upgrading we are upgrading ourselves to to a higher form of liberalism where individualism uh, gains a primacy over the collective am i right absolutely because you know i the common man i mean uh, it's a, it's a very symbolic uh, you know turn uh, from we we begin to speak main aam aadmi hu i am the common man this was the this is a slogan these are the caps t-shirts everywhere you know which are used and basically this also is using this very technocratic ethos you know uh, which which became the flagship you know operation of the aam aadmi party which is that uh, you know we need technocratic solutions which is like that we are apolitical that we don't want to go into ideological politics you know that uh, that we will bring accountability so it was literally doing all those you know the, the you know what is broadly called the new liberal ethos of being into into indian politics but doing it in an non supposedly non ideological way and moving more towards technocracy and this is where we see that liberal uh, you know uh, modes of being personhood becomes more entrenched and this idea of aam aadmi that begins in 2004 according to your argument that is the same continuum exist all the way until 2014 when prime minister modi's own claim is to be an aam aadmi Right. No, what is fascinating is that Aam Aadmi, as such, is a very well-known figure in Indian popular culture, and that actually goes back to R. K. Lakshman's cartoons. You know, and uh, what is fascinating is that uh, everyone is familiar with the notion of Aam Aadmi, and uh, those cartoons were always about that the Aam Aadmi is the victim. he is a bystander who witnesses all the political ups and downs and you know strange things which happen and he is ultimately the loser but he has absolutely no power to intervene and i think what is fascinating is that how that passive figure the witness becomes an actor an active agent of change and i think this is what we what we witness that a popular figure has been you know brought in uh, incorporated into the political operation and uh, aam aadmi actually becomes a uh, you know a force to reckon with in indian politics and by the way of course um, you know arvind kejriwal and aam aadmi party as such of course they they bear the mascot but it has equally been used by bjp uh, under modi as well uh you know where he positioned himself as this common person who has also climbed the heights of uh, you know like gain political power so i think and likewise congress has also tried to do with its own campaign aam aadmi ko kya mila so in a way aam aadmi 
or the individual arm admi which is not the collective has become pretty much uh, you know in many ways different political parties and projects have tried to incorporate it so you speak through the book about how a selective emphasis on some aspects and a very careful exclusion of some aspects of the national character is an integral part of branding the nation and then you not this uh, peculiarity of our present time which is the eviction of muslims and dalits from this national frame the image an emphasis more emphasis on the hindu iconography the civilizational components from yoga to vegetarianism etc etc so when does that break happen if i recall correctly are you alluding to the possibility that india shining was a, had a more inclusive taste to it and after that actually the achedin and the current vishwaguru uh, kind of image that india is building now that exclusion becomes more emphatic i think this is uh, because all these campaigns branding campaigns at first sight they may seem similar but actually they are quite different and you're right in pointing out that uh, you know india shining actually tried to come up with a very inclusive and a very you know modern global kind of imagery of india and i think most of it is uh, you know for example there is uh, you know one uh, like there are several images but one of them uh, is of a muslim weaver who is uh, very prominently displayed with all the you know signs and symbols uh, of being a muslim where uh, basically positioned as a successful entrepreneur Uh, in small and medium industries so i think that was that is quite telling basically what the message it gives is that regardless of who you are you can be part of the nation as long as you're productive and bring value and by that economic value to the nation so in a way so this new liberal you know order opens up space for people to make themselves a new uh, you know part of the constituents of the nation but through the economic route and uh, likewise uh, you know i can give you several examples of that but there are other campaigns where you would see that as important as what is in the frame is what has been left outside and by that i mean that very much the imagery of you know of doing yoga or you know uh, you know or leaving out mughal symbolism specifically when it comes to architecture etc uh, that has been um, that has been in a way um, you know central to producing a particular kind of uh, you know cultural hindu uh, you know imagery one exception in this is taj mahal because taj mahal it poses actually quite a fascinating uh, you know uh, you know example which is that uh, taj mahal is the highest revenue earner when it comes to tourism if i'm not wrong i think it earns nearly half the tourism revenue in india and it continues to be associated with, with india throughout the world which basically means that it is its economic value which makes us absolutely central uh, that it cannot be ignored or excluded and barring uh, that you i you would not come across too many of those uh, you know the islamic architecture or the indo islamic architecture to be featured but just to say that uh, that uh, as important as what is in the frame is what is left out of the frame which gives us an idea how the cultural imagery of the nation is shaping up okay so when when prime minister modi came to power the the expectation of the global capital so to speak was that okay india will be a more liberal place in terms uh, of social relations and a more hospitable environment for capital 
right now where we stand there is a lot of international criticism of the government's domestic policies so you speak about this bonds of investment where there is an unstated or undeclared agreement that okay the what happens within the country or within the domestic space is not my business uh, what is actually of worth for the international community or the global globalized community is how hospitable it is for a capital how do you square that argument with recurring global criticism that uh, you do actually face because there is some disappointment also in terms of uh, how the brand india is being viewed globally i think that's also very important because you know the belief has always been that liberal politics goes together with liberal economics but what we are witnessing here is that liberal economics that is the lure of markets can actually that it does not necessarily require uh, you know political liberalism and what you are talking about um, you know what i call the bonds of investment and bonds i by that i mean in a you know it's tongue in cheek double speak that bond is both the you know ties you know which bring us together but it is also bonds as in you know in financial terms the the form of investment and basically what what happens here is that that investment has become uh, you know very much aligned in this idea that uh, this is none of like marking territory that this is none of our business the social cultural sphere is not our sphere um, and uh, we will only and this by the way this is not just foreign invest uh, investors uh, but we are also speaking about the domestic investors and we must also say that when it comes to investments foreign domestic differences really don't mean that much because indian uh, you know businesses are investing overseas uh, just like overseas businesses are investing in india so it's pretty much a global landscape that we are talking about so what happens here is that yes there is critique and uh, some kind of uh, you know sense that oh what is happening in india in terms of its democratic ethos etc but in every society as you know there are different uh, interest groups you know the trade people do not speak exactly the same as uh, you know would be human rights activists or you know or literary people or civil society etc so we must bear in mind that uh, the critique does not necessarily come from the trade circles but it will come from somewhere else but yes indeed that uh, brand india certainly uh, you know is undergoing this kind of reassessment like what does it stand for because recall that one of the most important uh, positioning It took place in uh, 2005-6 around that time and that was to position india as the world's largest free market uh, democracy and it was not free market economy but free market uh, democracy and the people who coined this slogan um uh, you know they were very much like you want to show that yes india is a place of growth but india is also a vibrant democracy and the point in making this slogan was precisely to distinguish itself from the other asian giant namely china the next door neighbor to say well yes growth is happening in china too but our growth is accompanied with a different kind of liberal ethos so okay we are well uh, past our uh, 25 minute uh, target uh, but i'll have a final question so when the nation is trying to brand itself as a very attractive destination to the rest of the world you say in the concluding parts of the book that uh, pessimism is considered a form of treachery now uh, even pessimism is unacceptable we can think of what criticism could be so criticism is uh, 
perhaps treason or uh, beyond. Uh, it is a very significant act of uh, anti-national uh, politics. So this idea of nation as a brand, which is to be showcased before the global public, that constant mobilization of the nation, that actually uh, come as a major danger to uh, the vibrancy of the domestic uh, democracy, would that be a right assessment? Yes, absolutely. This we have uh, talked about that how, you know, branding or the demand for a unified identity and the maintenance of an image constantly that that is at odds with the demands of democracy, which requires dissent and, you know, a little bit of chaos. And but one what one must remember is that, uh, of course, there are other successful examples of being a democracy and being, uh, you know, a great brand without making much I do, you know, I'm talking about, uh, you know, let's say European Union or many European nations which which strive to, you know, make this kind of, uh, you know, this balance, you know, being a liberal uh, society, liberal democracy, but at the same time, you know, an extremely liberal uh, economic uh, uh, policies as well. So, of course, it doesn't have to be like this. My point is that, of course, this is not uh, something which uh, which can't be changed or something which, uh, you know, which is absolutely set in stone. I mean, uh, you know, it is perfectly possible to have, uh, you know, a vibrant democracy and a vibrant economy as well. So, what I'm trying to say is that Yes, this is what has happened, but it doesn't have to be like this because India has actually. Uh, I just want to, you know, you know, in the beginning you talked about that the hope that India will emerge. I want to remember that in two thousand, I think nine, uh, President Obama visited uh, India and he made this famous statement that uh, India is no longer emerging. India has already emerged. And that is very important because the idea that in, what does it mean to emerge? Because India was already, you know, striking uh, very important uh, deals or getting good deals. Uh, for example, one to three agreement, if we remember, of course, it was controversial, etc. But USA was already, you know, making a lot of space for India's you know, rise. So we must remember that India is a very, you know, it's a large population, a large territory. The sheer size and scale means that India is always going to be central to the world and um, and that its emergence or its role in the world is pretty much assured. Right. So we will conclude there, Ravinder, and uh, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation. And uh, this book, I really loved reading the book. I'm sure our listeners will definitely find it as fascinating as I have experienced it. So I strongly recommend the brand new nation, capitalist dreams and nationalist designs in 21st century India. And all the best wishes, Ravi, and looking forward to reading your next one and having you again on this show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 